Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Welcome to Wednesday morning. Now, in the old days, there'd be Prime Minister's questions, but of course, uh, there isn't any Prime Minister's questions. Why? Because summer holidays have ensued. I've always wondered why Parliament cannot actually sit throughout the summer holidays. I mean, would it be any problem for people to take a couple of weeks off, take their family abroad, hop off to Ibiza, uh, go to, I don't know, Faro, uh, head off to Budapest, uh, you know, have a Vienna holiday, go to the uh, Philippines, go to Maui, if you wish, all sorts of places where you could go on holiday, uh, and yet the business of Parliament could still go on. There will be people who will say, well, the thing is, you know, there are still people working inside the Parliament and inside the uh, uh, Palace of Westminster, and of course, lots of MPs are doing lots of very important work in their constituencies. Yes, 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 I know all that, but why can't we still keep having proper debates in Parliament, proper time for uh, people to have, you know, I don't know, uh, individual bills discussed, possibilities of policy being discussed. I mean, we're in the midst of all kinds of problems at the moment. We've got an inflation crisis. We've got a wage spiralling crisis. uh, We've got a um, a migrant crisis. We've got all sorts of other crises in the NHS. And the railway workers are still on strike. You know, things are not going particularly well. And yet, everybody's gone on holiday. The roads are a little bit quieter, which is one good thing. Uh, But to be honest, is it any wonder why Britain is kind of grinding to a halt and nobody can get anything done? I hear story after story after story of people telling me, well, I tried to do this, but then nobody answered the phone. So I just gave up. That is pretty much the parable of modern Britain. We'll talk about that uh, throughout the course of the show. We'll talk about Russian spies. We'll talk about flags being hanged uh, from various buildings in Wales. We'll talk about what Rishi Sunak thinks should happen to TikTok rioters. We'll talk as well about why so many people are working from home. We'll talk as well about what's going on in Scotland, because believe it or not, uh, a big advertising hoarding organisation has decided to ban a political advert from the Alipa party, that's Alex Salmon's party, and they refuse to allow them to put it up in Edinburgh. Meanwhile, at Edinburgh Festival, the bastion of the arts, uh, Graham Linehan's show has been cancelled because they don't like his views on trans people. 
The world has gone completely mad, ladies and gentlemen. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We can only do one thing, talk to as many sensible people as possible. Alex Phillips is up first, former MEP with the Brexit Party, of course. We're going to talk to Howard Cox about why uh, this country seems to want to be at war with the motorists. We'll be talking to Gavin Mortimer from The Spectator. Anthony Worrell Thompson's here as well to tell us why it's so important to give people a tip when you go and have dinner with them. Anna Mendoza, Donald McLeod from Scotland uh, on the ULES problem up there, uh, where basically there are businesses going out of business as a result of ludicrous and crazy net zero inspired council planning. 0344 499 1000 is the number to call. Let us get it on. And in addition to which, if you have got uh, teenage kids and you're waiting for exam results, tomorrow's a big day. There'll be A-levels coming in tomorrow, so you'll be able to tell uh, little Johnny uh, or little Susan uh, exactly where they might be going for the next three years. In my view, if they don't go to university, you should convince them it's not the end of the world. Not everybody who goes to university likes it, and lots of people who don't go to university do just fine. Thank you very much indeed. Let's talk to Alex Phillips. Very good morning to you, Alex. Good morning. I've gone off on a bit of a rant there, um, partly because it's one of those kind of weeks where the news is sort of, you know, a bit malleable. It's a bit blancmange-like. There's no massive, great big story to get your hands uh, on and get stuck into. But I wonder, and you've been a parliamentarian in Europe, I mean, why can't they sit throughout the summer? Why do we have to have this annual kind of bun fest where, you know, you get to the sort of end of July and everybody just buggers off and doesn't come back till the end of September? You know, I have wondered this myself... I think I was even banging on about this myself the other day. It seems crazy and really archaic to have a situation where Parliament just doesn't operate mm. for weeks, you know, months, in fact, on end. They have this huge summer recess because the way that democracy actually works is the passage of bills through Parliament. And that was often frustrated by the second chamber. These things can take an incredibly long amount of time. And so the more time you don't have bums on green benches, the even longer it's going to take to pass legislation, to enact legislation, mm. to actually get the country up and running and make decisions for the people so i'm with you if, if everyone else can survive on you know four weeks holiday then so can parliament yeah and well, I, I don't mean... buy this all but they do important work for their constituency they should do that year round they've got an office of people paid for by the taxpayer yeah. to do exactly that get themselves into the debating chamber and get bills passed exactly right because i mean at the end of the day how many times do you look at you know the parliament channel and see that there's a debate going on and there's only literally about half a dozen people there or maybe you know 20 at the most so you know they quite often can can have reasonably good debates and have reasonably good business going on without the place having to be full up like it is for pmqs you know i just think it's an anachronism you know it's a bit like sunday shopping hours you know why now just because we used to do it do we have to close shops on a sunday at four o'clock in the afternoon you know people work seven days a week you know, let's actually open the economy. Let's try and build some growth in and let's stop taking so many bloody holidays. Yeah, but the constant push at the moment in society is basically for lower productivity, isn't it? All we keep is work-life balance, work-life balance. Oh, you should be working from home. Oh, people need more holidays. Let's have more bank holidays. When actually Britain wasn't built on a sort of Gallic attitude of having siestas and, you know, enjoying yourself. It was built on blood, sweat and tears. And that's mm. what we're renowned for. And I don't buy into this idea that you can be productive working from home. I've seen people who work from home. I am from home. I mean, I'm not working from home right now. I'm actually on my holiday into a pool time to do this. So, oh, yeah. um, you know, I, I'm going to give myself a pat on the back. Yeah, I'm in the south of France. It's rather nice here. Very nice. But, um, 
But no, this idea that people work from home and it makes them more productive because there are fewer you know, distractions, they're not gossiping at the water cooler. I mean, I don't buy it. I think 80% of people who work from home are doing it so they can put a load of washing on, not set the alarm until nine o'clock in the morning, make themselves a really flamboyant and long lunch. I'm not saying we should be slave drivers in this country, but I, I think this idea that, you know, somehow life's going to be better, we're going to be more productive, we're going to be more conducive as a society, more harmonious by people being in silos connected to computers. I just don't think that's the right way forward. No. And also, we're not actually better connected because all you get is people being horrible to one another on social media and posting nasty things about people because they don't actually see them in the office. and They don't actually see them in person. But you're absolutely right. I mean, we hear that HMRC at the moment this week apparently have got fewer people in the office than they had during the lockdown. I mean, one, I suppose one good thing about that is that maybe they're not investigating quite so many people for not paying enough tax. But at the end of the day, the civil service is uh, uh, paid by us and we should expect them to be at work. Well, especially when they're handling what is essentially extremely confidential information about... Um of the public you know they're sitting there with people's uh, end of year tax returns documenting everything that's gone in and out of one's bank account mm. and yeah, you know, what having their nice crappuccino that's a new favorite word having a crappuccino they've wandered up the high street to get on a sort of rather long long luxurious 11 o'clock break mm. um but you know actually i think hmrc are investigating even more people they're looking for coins down the back of the sofa everywhere aren't they and what they're not doing is going after all the people with their grand PPE contracts yes. during the pandemic and all those people who took out loans that shouldn't and went on furlough and had seconds. Those people have got away with it and they're now turning to Mrs. Miggins and Joe Bloggs to try and get every last coin out of them. Mm. Absolutely right. And I mean, the thing is, at the end of the day, um, you know as well as I do that if you are going to do a day's work, uh, it's actually rather nice to go somewhere else to do it as well. It's not good for you to just sit in the same room as you sit in when you're sitting at home because it's frankly not conducive to working. It doesn't put you in the right frame of mind for working. And I don't care what anybody says, you know, you're not as efficient. You're not uh, as sort of, you know, focused because there's too many distractions. Right. We're social animals and we need that immediacy and that human contact very often to get things done and to get along with one another. And it wasn't a coincidence that the whole BLM uprising, if you want to call it that, Mm. happened at the same time as lockdown. When people were stuck at home, they weren't mingling with one another. They automatically go back to their tiny microcosms of their very small locked in communities, their echo chambers on social media, their little Facebook groups. And it's very easy getting that sort of Bible mentality when you start within a you know tiny social circle and not mixing with everybody else out there in the world and it was the second environment essentially for activism and uprising to be forged and and that's the other big risk and think of all the businesses that are going to shut down because there isn't footfall anymore Mm. i hate this idea that we're sort of sleepwalking towards this robotized uh, anatomical environment where we're just plugged into the main board where the postman doesn't knock the door and you don't say a cheery Mm. hello where you don't go into a shop it's delivered by and i just think that sounds abominable oh it does absolutely horrendous alex there you are we're going to try and get a slightly better signal from you as well uh, alex phillips talking to us uh, from her holiday but she's allowed to have one uh, she's back next week uh, we're going to talk about the bulgarian spies spying for the russians in great yarmouth what's so special about great, great yarmouth also the migrant crisis what's going on with that the latest and also of course uh, the nhs still in crisis they haven't solved it yet they're not going to anytime soon this is talk tv Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV.
Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We've got lots going on today. It's going to be very, very exciting indeed. Uh, not least because we've got to talk about spies. And everybody likes to talk about spies. Everybody enjoys a spy story. Uh, yesterday, it came out that three Bulgarian citizens who have lived in Britain for years and worked in a variety of jobs have been accused of spying for Russia, right? Nobody's quite sure exactly what they were doing. Orlin Rusov, Bizer Zamazov and Katrin Ivanova uh, have been charged with possessing 19 fake documents with, in their words, improper intention. They include passports, identity cards and driving licences for the UK, Bulgaria, France, Italy, Spain, Croatia, Slovenia, Greece and the Czech Republic. They are accused of posing as journalists from American television companies. Scotland Yard is saying that they found forged press cards clothing for the discovery of National Geographic channels, which were used to carry out surveillance operations, and they apparently had targets in London, Germany and Montenegro. Sounds a bit like a James Bond film, doesn't it? Or maybe some kind of cut-rate Jason Bourne scenario. Alex, um, you worked in Brussels, and so you'd have to assume that some of the people you encountered in your time as an MEP may well have been uh, on the old, old uh, sort of side of the Iron Curtain and a bit of spying activity. Did you ever meet anybody who you thought might have been a spy? No, well, do you know what? I did meet a guy who was the representative of a Huawei who was knocking on everybody's doors like a madman, this little Irish guy. And I was like, mm, what's he up to? <laughs> you know, with 30,000 corporate lobbyists in Brussels, then there's going to be a few of them who are up to no good. And yeah. it's very targetable, isn't it? And we saw with Qatargate, didn't we, how easy it is essentially to shove money in a briefcase, mm. give it to an MEP and get them to do uh, their bidding. I think right. what the... Uh, Maybe what the other dodgy countries who want to infiltrate European politics don't understand is that the European Parliament is a useless place to do it because it's frankly toothless. It doesn't propose legislation. It doesn't amend legislation. But then that poses an even bigger risk, doesn't it? Because you've got multiple commissioners, EU commissioners, faceless bureaucrats who nobody knows who they are. They're the ones making the legislation. We all know that they're at the uh, at the behest of the corporate cartel, yes. essentially. Brussels politics, the big companies, the Unilevers, the Nestle's who come out of all the bendy banana mm. regulations um, to make sure they can't be competed with in the international marketplace. Um, and we don't know how much vulnerability there is in the European Commission because these people are not scrutinised. And I think that's really quite alarming. Mm. But certainly for a very long time now, for decades and decades, the Cold War never ended when it came to spying and intelligence. We've seen attacks by Russians against their own agents on our soil. We know it goes on. Um, and so this doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, I always tell the story, and I don't know whether I've ever told you this one, about why I was invited one uh, time when I was foreign editor of Daily Express into the Foreign Office uh, by a guy who is now actually an ambassador, and I'm not going to mention his name, but at that time he was head of press for the Foreign Office, um, and he became quite a powerful character. And he said, oh, you know, it'd be good to meet you, come down, we're having a few people around for a drink. I got there, and if you've ever been in there, it's like this huge, cavernous, beautiful building on Whitehall, right next to the back of Downing Street, and they've got these big freezes and these sweeping staircases, and it turned out it was just me and, like, five of these characters from the Foreign Office. And... As they gave me more and more wine, they started to say things like, um, you must see some interesting stories that don't make it into the paper. And I went, yeah. And they were like, maybe you could pass those to us. And I'm going, not really. No, I don't think I'd do that. And it was a very bizarre kind of two hours I spent with them. And I walked out thinking, 
I think they were trying to sort of tap me up to be a spy in some way, shape or form, because we did have, you know, foreign correspondents in places like Tirana when there was a, a, a sort of coup going on. And we did have people in Africa and, and who were sending us copy, which didn't always make it into the paper. And it's a very murky kind of world. And you can probably I can see how you could easily find yourself in it without realising. Yeah, no, I'm sure that's true. And these people know how to operate, don't they? Double agents and people who are undercover. They can infiltrate many departments. They can end up working in MPs' offices right. and go undiscovered for a very long period of time. Mm. Um, and I think that goes on in all countries, but probably no, none more so than um, the West mm. right now. Because essentially the Cold War never finished and the anti-Western alliance are upping the stakes, really, when it comes to grey zone warfare and the like. Um, But, you know, one thing I do find quite alarming is I know a lot of people in the intelligence services and I I, I speak to them and communicate with them quite a bit Mm. Um, on a personal level, not because I'm sort of operating for GCHQ myself. But I do know people who in the private sector of intelligence often say to me, the big issue we have, we've got fantastic intelligence services in this country we've got some of the best in the world when it comes to monitoring tracking having a handle on geopolitics and strategy the big problem they have is the government don't listen to them Mm. that the intelligence services very sensible people like sir richard dealer have been saying for a long time we've got to be wary of how many contracts we're doing with china and then the government goes and signs up for china to start building nuclear power you know hands away our ability to manufacture electric vehicles here and now there's the risk that electric vehicles manufactured in china could essentially be remotely controlled through beijing which is quite alarming what they could do on the roads um and the intelligence services i think very often are pulling out their hair because governments just think quick fix must make money Mm. must solve energy crisis because we've failed in this policy making departments for decades so oh we'll just get the chinese to do it that will please the voter and it's it's also the personalities i mean i read this morning one of the, the pieces about this bulgarian spy ring that chris philp who's a sort of in and out of junior government ministerial roles was somehow the head of some espionage uh, steering committee which was supposed to keep an eye on stuff. This is a guy who, when he was working in the the Justice Department, I asked him if it was illegal to wear a mask uh, or illegal not to wear a mask on the tube. He didn't know. I'm like, you know, you're in Justice Department. You're supposed to know if Sadiq Khan threatens me with arrest, is it actually illegal? He couldn't tell me. So you do worry that they put these kind of rather junior ministers who might not be imbued with a great deal of intelligence themselves in charge of intelligence. Yeah, well, actually, the civil service mainly runs uh, our government departments now. They've got the whip hand over minister, so I wouldn't worry too much about the competence of those people who are normally doing the job. I don't think we actually know the, the various people who hold all the power and have their hands on the tiller when it comes to who's actually running this country. Mm. But uh, no, I mean, what, what we have as well is a situation where MPs have second jobs. I think that's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't be more vulnerable than being a politician who can actually vote on things. You might sit on a committee and can introduce certain and legislation who if they're you know involved in cabinet work then having business interests on the outside i mean that surely is ridiculous in the 21st century when you know how sophisticated international espionage is when you know how far countries like china and russia will go to try and control things Mm, absolutely right speaking of uh, incompetence i mean how much worse can this government get when it comes to trying to deal with the migrant crisis i mean it's literally gone from the, the, the really, really bad to the awful in about seven days. I mean, it's just going to get worse, isn't it? They, they, there is only one thing that could be done which would work, and they know it, 
and we know it and everybody listening knows it and that is to stop the boats coming over in the first place if you had a situation where the boats got halfway across the channel and were sent back very quickly it made headlines around well yes Rishi Sunak would look a little bit unpopular at mm. the next UN hobnobbing but do you know what it would stop happening. All of a sudden, the French would get the message, we're not tolerating this. All of a sudden, the people traffickers would think, well, everyone's seen the headlines of the boats turning around. We're not going to get any customers anymore. And that would actually work. It worked in Australia. It worked in New Zealand. Yet what we had the other day, when we had those uh, the, the, the poor tragic souls who died in the Channel, drowned just, uh, just off the coast of France, mm. the French Navy escorted them to our side of the Channel and went, ta-ta, then have a nice time, bon yeah. voyage. And then they died. So, you know, I mean, this is the, the game the French are playing. And now the EU is saying, oh, we're not going to have a returns agreement with you. They're politicizing this and saying, well, because of Brexit, that means that if all these people are coming to you illegally because we have open borders and we didn't manage our frontiers, we're not going to take them back. And the EU essentially have blood on their hands mm. because if they said, OK, we're going to work with you to stop these people crossing the channel, people wouldn't cross the channel. People wouldn't die in the channel. And yet they clothe themselves in moral rectitude yeah. as if they are some sort of great Samaritan. And at the same time, are saying no returns agreement. No, 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 no way. You've got to be punished for Brexit. I mean, the people yeah. stuck in the middle here are people who are willing to pay people traffickers tens of thousands of pounds. Yes, a lot of them are opportunists. Mm. Yes, a lot of them are coming from dodgy countries. We don't know who they are, if they're the bad guy or the good guy. But there are also desperate people there, without a doubt. Um, and the EU are exploiting the lot of it and essentially putting money in the back of international organised crime that funds drugs cartels, that funds terrorism. We've now learned that Afghans are competing with the Kurds to be the biggest people traffickers when it comes to this huge international exodus of people. Well, which Afghans do you think these people are? Do you think these are the Afghans that fought side by side with uh, no. UK and US soldiers? Or do you think these are the Taliban? Yeah. It's probably the Taliban. Yeah. And it's probably IS that we are actually funding right now by not dealing with this problem. Exactly. And the problem with the EU is that they're not even uniform in the way that they treat other countries. You know, for example, the Greeks are apparently now physically pushing migrant boats back into Turkish waters and leaving it to them. They're basically doing what the French do to us and nobody's giving them a hard time for it. Poland is about to have a referendum uh, on whether or not migrants should be accepted into the country and the, and the Polish are very unhappy with any kind of EU imposition of refugees. Um, you know, meanwhile, uh, Scandinavian countries are, are, are deporting people right, left and centre, as are Germany, saying that we won't allow anybody to claim asylum from Albania. You know, every country has got its own policy but apparently they can't help us with ours. Well, they've got to get a grip on this, don't they? Because this is actually a threat to European security. First of all, it's a threat to security because of infrastructure, because of overwhelming population growth. And what happens to society when you've got people from vastly different communities and cultures coming en masse to live within a country without fully integrating when it's not mm. organized and sensible and calculated inward migration. And then, of course, the ISIS didn't disappear. You know, it's not like, oh, ISIS is just not, not being ISIS anymore, going right. to shave off my beard and get a job in the tax department. <laughs> no, they didn't go anywhere. They're still operating. Right. As a, still got the black flag in the bedroom, waiting to bring it out, waving around. <laughs> Yeah, that, those flags will be unfurled in time, definitely. And 
these people are the ones who are controlling the movement of people, exploiting people who are, um, you know, essentially refugees, genuine refugees in their own countries. But also, who else do you think they're putting on those boats? Probably their own operatives yeah. and terrorists. So we've got to get real about this. Europe has to get real. It all started when Angela Merkel went, come one, come all, poor migrants. You can all come to Europe. You are all welcome. You know, and all those sort of Germans stood there with their refugees welcome signs yeah, outside yeah. And now look what they've caused. Europe needs to deal with this. Europe actually probably at this point needs to put border checks in place. And it's not really that difficult, is it? The old infrastructure can easily be put back up. If you're going from one place to the other, you can do a spot check on vehicles. Well, you might remember. And um, recognition. Yeah, I mean, you might remember. We've got to run. But you might remember when, when COVID came to northern Italy, guess what happened? The Germans shut the border to Italy and were like, nobody's coming through. They could do that tomorrow and stop all of this movement of people uh, from every single part of the, the, the southern Mediterranean. Alex, listen, enjoy your holiday. We'll see you next week. Uh, Alex is going to join me next week at 9.30 uh, every single day. And she's going to be filling in for Kevin O'Sullivan at three o'clock as well. Uh, Alex Phillips, former MEP for the Brexit Party, of course. Um, of course, she met spies. I've probably met some. You may have even met some. And if they're in Great Yarmouth, where else are they? 0344 499 1000. Coming up, uh, we're going to ask the question, why is every single council in this country, and I call this country the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, so anti-motorist? Howard Cox is next. On the app, on your smart speaker, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, the home of common sense, the one place to get the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And let me tell you this, uh, you might think that that's easy to do, but it isn't. Because there's an awful lot of people trying to obscure the truth, an awful lot of people trying to tell you something that isn't true, a lot of people trying to cover over what actually is going on. And we are here to tell you what is going on because we talk to people who know what is going on. And we're about to do that right now. Howard Cox is here, a man that knows an awful lot about what's going on. Howard, welcome to the studio. Hello, Mike. Very nice to see you. Fair Fuel UK, but also, of course, running for mayor of this great city of London of ours. Uh, everybody's willing you on, uh, not just because uh, they quite like the look of you, but they just don't <laughs> like Sadiq Khan. I mean, literally everybody I meet, can somebody get rid of this guy? I mean, he's so annoying. He just annoys people to such an extent. I've never seen such visceral hatred for a man who has been democratically elected twice. Although, and you might answer this for me, I read over the weekend that apparently they're changing the voting system in the next mayoral election to first past the That's post. That's correct. Which I thought it was. So you you going to tell me that it's some kind of proportional representation? Well, it used to be. Really? The, the second vote you could transfer to the first. It, it, so that explains out. a lot, because yeah. under that system, you get people like Sadiq Khan and Nicola Sturgeon. Yeah, but it's going to be much harder for me first cast past the post. There's yeah. no doubt about it. But I, I'm, I'm up for the fight, Mike. Yeah, well, as long as it's harder for him, that's the main thing. Yeah. Um, because a lot of people would say that we'd rather have a stuffed toy yeah. You know, with Sadiq Khan running the place. But there we are. Listen, let's talk about war on the motorists because you've been fighting on behalf of the motorists for a long time. You've got a big piece in the sun today, um, not just about all of the things that we know are causing problems, ULEZ, um, you know, congestion charging, fuel tax and all of that. Tell us about your piece in the sun today and what it means. Well, it, what it's about is actually is because of the flip-flopping of the Keir Starmer. I mean, uh, Sadiq Khan's boss is Keir Starmer. Right. And you'd think he'd actually do something about it. But mm. the only reason he's actually doing anything about it and flip-flopping is because they lost in Uxbridge. Right. And it's a simple thing. He suddenly thing discovered that, oh, oh, blimey, maybe we should do something for the car driver. Well, that's the point. Drivers uh, across the country, millions and millions of drivers are fed up the back teeth being used as pawns. Mm. Not just cash cows, as we all know they already are. But when a poly, uh, when 
an election comes up, Mike, as we know, suddenly they become important. And both Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer are vying for the the, the driver's vote. I'm yeah. afraid they're in for a real big shock because right. they're not happy with either of the parties. No, exactly right. Because an awful lot of people, the vast majority of people in this country, drive cars because most of them have to. I mean, I say this to people all the time about London, and it's not just to be London-centric, but most people driving in the centre of London today are doing that because they have to. Not because they want to, because it's expensive, isn't it? You're absolutely no choice. And what's happening at the moment in time with all the anti-driver policies, it hits the poor the hardest, it hits the sole trader the hardest, the electrician, the plumber, the, the, the carpenter. Those yeah. are the people being hit hard, the very soul and the very commercial heartbeat of our economy. And you, guess what? Let's go and put another tax on them. Let's, go, let's, let's make it harder for them to drive into mm. places. Let's really demonise them even further. Let's ramp up the parking charges. Exactly. Right? Yeah, and especially if you drive a diesel. Yeah, and um, also if you're going to work, and I've noticed, and this may be not something that affects many, many people, but most of the streets now in London, if you want to park on them, they've got a time limit. So you can't park your car there at nine o'clock in the morning and say, right, I'm going to go to work and I'm going to come back at five o'clock and drive it home because you'll have a ticket on it if you haven't been clamped and if it hasn't been towed away because you can only park there for sort of two hours at a time, right? And you can't even use cash most of the time. No, no you've got to use an app. Oh, and God. Of, you know what happens with that. I mean, yeah. I actually recently actually parked not far from here uh, with my app and it came up with, yes, it's all paid for and everything. Mm. It didn't go through out of my account. So I'm fined 60 quid. Of course you are. I mean, I, I, I read a story the other day that if you've got an electric car, yeah. Because of all the different ways of charging it, yeah. you can have as many as 30 different apps on your phone yeah. in order to make sure that you can qualify to charge your yeah. car when you, when you finally get to a charging point. That's bonkers. And, and you have to have a smartphone to do it. You can't yeah. do it in a, a bog-standard right. little... I suppose uh, if you're a virtue signaling electric car driver, you know, you've, yes, got, of course. You've, got, you've got a smartphone. You've probably got an Apple, actually. goes to my Tesla... You know, but but no, they don't make it easy, do they? No. Um, and the problem for everyone now is not just you, Les. It's this new uh, petrol sales ban, which you'll talk about in the in the sun today. Twenty thirty is supposed to be the date at which you can no longer buy a new car fueled by petrol or diesel. I think it's mad. I think the, the world's not ready for this. Well, again, and my point of my piece uh, today is actually, you know, start listening to voters, you mm. silly idiots of politicians. Yeah. And I, I'd like to say a stronger word, but the fund, fundamentally... I the thought you were going to do it for Yeah, I know. I'm sorry, Mike. You would have had to <laughs> leap, leap over and grab me. The 2030 ban is completely and utterly stupid. And I was one of the few people, in fact, the only mayoral candidate that's mm. done an e- economic analysis. And I've spoken to you about this before. Yeah. The cost of the 2030 ban is five times more than the benefits. Mm. Now, sorry, I'm a politician. I'm sitting there. I'm running yeah. the, the, the nation's purse strings. Oh, I'm, gonna, I'm quite happy to spend five times yeah. more than the benefits. Right. Where's that come Why from? Why would you? Also, I mean, take me back to Sadiq Khan and his ridiculous idea that he's now going to encompass anyone who wants to have a new car. Uh, he's going to give them two grand. First of all, two grand <laughs> is not going to get you a pair of tyres on some <laughs> new cars, right? Um, secondly, it's our money he's playing with. You know, who said that you could give another 2,000 quid to another, I don't know, 40,000 people? Well, this is what's so wrong. He manages a budget of £20 billion. Yeah. Okay. Laughable. It, it is laughable. He's got a massive black hole of deficit that he's been managing. It's getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Mm. And his only way of actually trying to actually replenish those funds yeah. is to hit the motorist, hit the driver. Yeah. That's his fallback position always. And it's so sad, yeah. uh, the man. And he's also dishonest. Mm. And I, I'd like to say oh. a strong word, as you know. Well, no, he is. Well, I'm going to say it. he's a liar. Yeah. Um, and if he wants to challenge me on that, maybe he should get his press office to do something other than say I no know. every time we ask him to come on. He got the fastest no in the West ever <laughs> yesterday. We asked him to come on. And before the even questions had been finished. Yes. No, he's not coming on. 
Um, you know, if he wants to come on and defend the charge that he's lying about air pollution, about the fact that his latest, most ridiculous one was last weekend, where he, he published some story that had been in The Guardian, he retweeted the story that had been in The Guardian, about how there might be a link, but there wasn't, they weren't sure, between um, air pollution and um, immunity to antibiotics. Oh, did you see that one? Yes, I did. And even in the story, it said there hasn't actually been a link established, we just think there might be. You go... Okay then, so that's fine. So, and now, so he's blowing that up. It's so just, he's making that yeah. as a reason. He's now saying that air pollution is the biggest killer in London. He's now saying that if you don't come on side with him, then basically you're siding with death and you might as well be the grim reaper. It's unbelievable what well, he does. The, the pathological liars that come out, uh, lies come out of his mouth just to suit his own personal agenda. And what, this is why I'm having a go at Keir Starmer in the sun today. Yeah. Why is he not actually talking to him and saying, cut back the ULES expansion? I, mm. As you know, I'm going to get rid of all of ULES. Yeah. But for, for at least, actually, uh, Keir Starmer knows that. He keeps telling everyone that he's going to stop it the rest of the country. Yeah, but not in London. Why? Because he's frightened of Sadiq Khan. Exactly. Apparently. I don't know why he's frightened of Sadiq Khan, because he's a lot bigger than him. And he could definitely take him. If well, there's a fight. lot of Labour votes in London. I think that's what Keir Starmer's scared of losing. Yeah, yeah but I mean, even Labour voters in London, they're not all cyclists, are they? <laughs> no. Surely not. I mean, there's a few of them out this morning. I mean, <laughs> yeah. they like the nice weather. You never see them in the rain. <laughs> no. You know, I put this thing out the other day saying, oh, the good news is uh, there's a load of bikes. Because out in Sussex this weekend, yeah. my God, yes. I must have passed about five pelotons of these blokes in Lycra, all searching for a new youth that they've lost many, many years before. All looking ridiculous. Four of them in one group were all wearing the same outfit. Well, and I, you kind of going, are you guys all right? Is there some kind of fetish going on? Did you get to some club later and they'll rub <laughs> each other down? What are you doing? Moving on to latex. I yeah, know. I mean, presumably. But, um, you know, they can't all be cyclists. They no. can't all be champagne socialists, these Labour No, voters, they're, not. they're not. And I'm... many of them, actually, will be sole traders, possibly. Exactly. Businessmen, businesswomen, who are going to be affected by this. Well, the point is about cyclists, and I'm, I'm actually, believe it or not, I'm a pro-cyclist, but unfortunately... I'm well, I, well I, I am pro on the basis that we, I'm all for any form of uh, road user transport, but they shouldn't dictate and dominate uh, mm. the lives. Uh, in fact, that brings me on. A big favour of uh, Talk TV and you, Mike, is for people to visit Fairfuel uk.com yes. and take part in a survey there which is asking their opinion of things like cycle lanes ulez's yeah. uh, ltns right. it's we've already up to seventeen thousand in three days responded wow. i'd love to get to fifty thousand. that's a proper poll isn't it yeah unlike these ones that they do in the guardian well, about three people you know there's now a majority of people who wish to see the end of the car altogether thank yeah. you so fairfueluk.com really okay. would appreciate that. excellent now as far as what else is going on in other parts of the country? We're going to be speaking to Donald McLeod up in Glasgow shortly oh, because there's a huge judicial review going on up there because their low emission zone, believe it or not, I don't know how much you know about this, is actually not one that you can buy um, a, a price of a ticket to go into. There is no way to do that. So it's not 12.50 to drive in it. If you go in it at all, you get fined 60 quid. I know. It's just, unbelievable. Well, this so is, there's no choice. This is what's happening in places like Canterbury and yeah. Oxford and all those sorts of places. Once you go into it, you're hit. And if you go across the wrong way, yeah. you're hit. Right. All these sorts of things. Um, this has got to stop. And this is why Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer must actually join forces and start getting on the, on the support of the motorist and yeah. the driver. This is the problem we've got. The first thing they do is hit them in the pocket. That's yeah. the only way they know, yeah. rather than incentivising them into cleaner uh, uh, fuel mm. technology. That's what they should be encouraging. There are fuel catalysts all around the world yeah. which actually halve emissions are available now. Why are we not using yeah. them? But all they're thinking of, as you say, is more ways of taxing 
the, the motorists. They're talking about now putting a, uh, a toll on the Blackwall Tunnel. I know. Which is something that, that maybe if you don't live in London, you won't know about. The Blackwall Tunnel is one of the main arteries from uh, south to north London. Because once you get sort of east of Tower Bridge, there's not many crossings. There was talk, wasn't there, of putting another one in. But basically, once you've passed Tower Bridge, there's the Blackwall Tunnel and there's a the Rotherhide Tunnel. Yep. And that's it. And then the Dartford Crossing, way uh, the hell over. So... Most people, I suppose, I would say, use the Dartford Crossing if they're not actually in London. But the Blackwall Tunnel is very busy. There's usually queues going in and out of Massive it all the queues. time. Massive um, queues. And now they want to put a toll on it. Uh, it's unbelievable. Which will slow it down even more. Oh, this is Rishi... Uh, not Rishi, I knew he said that. Sadiq Khan for you. This is yeah. his, Again, his fallback is, oh, how much more money I can get? Oh, the Blackwall Tunnel. You watch Rotherfire Tunnel. That's going to be done too yeah. soon. Yeah, I know. I'm not a big fan of the Rotherfire Tunnel. No, no. It's a bit too narrow. I got I lost my, one of my mirrors going through there. It's very a few narrow. Few weeks ago, some guy just whacked into my mirror, um, and uh, that cost me a few quid as well. But anyway, uh, that's another story. So, what's on the agenda for you for the rest of the weekend, Howard? Well, well there's a lot of things going on. Uh, I'm at the anti-ULES rally in Alpington yeah. uh, on Saturday, and okay. on Sunday there's a massive rally of motorbikes going right. around. When uh, the best way to go to it is the Box Hill Cafe and the Ace Cafe in East London. Though, though I think Northwest, I might get confused. The Ace Cafe used to be by Brent Cross. That's the one. Is that the that's, one? That's the one. Yeah. Sorry, I got it. Because when I was a kid, we used to drive past it. Yeah. And the mods used to hang out there. Uh, before they went down to Brighton to fight the Rockets. Well, it's inside the the new extended ULEs. So they're being hit. Right. And, motor, and you know it's a motorbike uh, haven mm. where they used to go, they get the old greasy yeah. uh, egg and chips yes. and all this sort of thing. But I'm on, a, on the back of a Harley. I'm being... being Profiled Very all the way nice. around twenty five. Very nice too. Well, Hugh Andre, who's our guy that comes in, yeah. does the veterans' voice. He's got a Harley. I'll yeah. tell him to come along. Yeah, good stuff. Yes, well, please. Listen, uh, listen, good luck to you. Uh, thank you very much indeed. And uh, the fight goes on because the motorist is under pressure. The motorist is very much up against it. Uh, Howard is fighting the good fight, not just to be mayor of London, but also just as Fair Fuel UK's representative. Um, you know, you need to join the fight because otherwise they'll just keep squeezing and squeezing and squeezing, literally until there's nothing left of you. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, uh, we're going to go live to Croydon. I always wanted to say those words. Where the box park is, uh, people are watching uh, the Lionesses. They're about to take on Australia in the semi-final of the Women's Football World Cup. We're going there next on Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're talking migrants coming up in this hour. We're joined by Gavin Mortimer, uh, writer at The Spectator, uh, our man on the other side of the channel, of course. Yesterday we had uh, Oliver Whitfield Miacic in the channel itself, uh, talking to people on boats, telling them uh, what they were. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Uh, uh, wanting to hear, which was basically uh, that there isn't much that anybody's doing apart from rescuing people from a place for which they don't need rescuing. An awful lot of Border Force boats, an awful lot of RNLI boats are actually rescuing, uh, in, qu- in quotes, people from uh, uh, not 
perilous situations because we know that because the perilous situation actually did happen when somebody did actually capsize, when people did actually die, when people did need rescuing. It didn't happen straight away because the Border Force and the RNLI were too busy already rescuing people who didn't need to be rescued, if you get my meaning. And unfortunately, as terrible tragedy uh, as it was, the people who died in the channel were a very small number of people compared to the numbers who survived the journey and who get from one side of the channel to the other. We also heard yesterday a very interesting call from somebody who was in Dunkirk recently who said what they witnessed was somebody driving up to the beach uh, in a big 4 by 4 with a huge trailer on the back carrying about three massive dinghies which were already blown up, which were already ready to be put in the water. The next thing that happened uh, was that a double-decker bus pulled up full of migrants, full of people who then got out of the bus, walked down to the front of the beach, put the boats in the water, got in them and took off all under the watchful gaze of the gendarmerie who were sitting drinking their coffee and smoking their cigarettes in a car. So that is kind of the reality of what's going on. We know the French don't want to do anything. We know that for Emmanuel Macron, there is no point in him caring about the migrants crossing the channel. In fact, it's in his interest to let them go. It's not in his interest to keep them because then he'll be accused of harbouring migrants that people in northern France don't want either. So it's a bit of a quandary all round. Chris in Horsham says, if the EU won't play nicely and stop the migrant boats, then why don't we play hardball and stop all EU boats fishing in our territorial waters? Watch them cry and say, that's not fair. Tough. Well, I think I've said this all along, that we are, unfortunately, the only people in this entire mix of nonsense that is playing by the rules. You know, ECHR, the European Convention on Human Rights, no other European country pays any attention to it. They're still in it, but they don't bother with it. We could do the same instead of actually allowing our lefty lawyers to dictate what we do and what the government can do because the ECHR doesn't allow it. And they claim all the time, well, of course, it's, you know, um, against the law, isn't it? Well, it's only against the law if you believe that the law applies to you. And if you don't think that the ECHR laws apply because they're only recommendations, then you're not breaking the law. It's that simple. We just need to be cleverer. Let's talk to Gavin Mortimer and find out what he makes of it all. Gavin, a very good morning. Morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. I don't know whether you recognise um, that sort of description of things that I just said there. One from, from the beach side, you know, there's no doubt that if they wanted to stop these boats taking off into the water, they could. If they wanted to stop them leaving French uh, waters, they could. They don't because they don't care, right? No, and it was interesting what you were saying about the double-decker bus turning up at uh, Dunkirk. I was listening to a French radio show yesterday shoot radio which is very good uh, i suppose it really in tone and substance the, the equivalent of uh, of talk tv yeah. and there was a discussion there about the migrant problem and someone said everyone knows that there's a, a ferry system using lorries and buses from paris to the channel coast and this has been going on for many years no one does anything about it these are the big migrant captain in paris and um no, absolutely it, it's and, and my it's only March that Sunak and uh, Macron had their great bro uh, bromance in Paris and they announced mm. a 480 uh, million pound deal to crack down on, on uh, illegal immigration. Yeah. Uh, clearly that's not worked out very well. And one has to ask, where is this money going? And where has this money been going to for the last decade? Because this has been going on for 10 years. And also, who is responsible for kind of making an account of it? You know, because somebody somewhere in government here surely should be asking somebody somewhere in government there, 
exactly what are you doing with the money? You know, can you show us what you're doing? Can you go with, you know, don't just give us a receipt saying, you know, receive, thanks very much indeed. What, you know, what have you done with it? Yeah, absolutely. It's like all this money that the uh, West um, gives to African countries for, for aid and to, to help the people. And it always seems to go uh, elsewhere into the, the people who aren't short of money already. So I think we're every reason to be cynical and sceptical. Right. And, uh, and just going back to, to what you were saying about macro, I mean, it's interesting with uh, and, and Britain playing by the rules. You know, I wrote a piece yesterday from the Spectator, Mike, about how Italy, um, or France rather, since 2018, has been pushing back migrants on the French-Italian border. And not only as recently as um, a fortnight ago, Medicine Sans Frontières, an NGO, highlighted this and said it's really, you know, what the what the French police are doing is, is illegal. And yet no one says anything about it. And what Macron is a master of, and it's what Trudeau is a master of, is portraying themselves as thoroughly decent, progressive types. But in fact, you know, we, we see with what Macron has done with his own people, passing various laws and, and democratically. We saw what Trudeau did during COVID, um, cracking down on demonstrations. These are people who are, they, they have a, a strange relationship with democracy. Yes, they do. But equally, you know, they're very good at shutting things down when they want to. I was talking earlier to Alex Phillips about, you know, what happened during COVID. Do you remember when North Italy was the kind of epicentre in Europe for COVID outbreaks, but at the very beginning of it all? And, you know, everybody in uh, north of uh, north of Italy, whether it was Germany, whether it was Austria, they just shut the border and they went, nobody's coming in. And so, you know, there was this mad dash from North Italy to get out if you were trying to get back into Germany or Switzerland, right? So they can actually stop the borders. They can put border checks in place. They could stop people coming from Italy and wandering across Europe and getting to France and then coming to Britain if they wanted to, but they just don't want to. No, they can't. There was no point in in newspapers yesterday. Sunak, it was an article about Richard Sunak struggling to get any deal with the EU about uh, um, to to tackle the migrant problem. Just give up, Mr Sunak, because they can't agree among themselves um, and they haven't been able to since this whole crisis began in 2011. So if they can't agree among themselves, the EU countries, they're not going to agree with Britain, who's still a pariah after we had the temerity to leave the EU in 2016. But very interestingly, Mike, and this hasn't been widely reported, but on Sunday, the Polish um, government announced that they will be having a referendum on the EU's um, immigration mm. policy. Because there's this EU policy whereby you, each EU country, the 27 member states, has to accept a certain number of, of migrants from the Middle East and from Africa. Yeah. And for everyone that is that they don't accept the countries, they're fined €20,000. So Poland has come up with a novel idea of actually putting it to the democratic vote in a referendum. Do the Polish people want this? Because this goes to the heart of the issue, Mike, that the, the, the European people... Constantly in surveys express a desire to have something done about illegal mass immigration yeah. and repeatedly the governments ignore them. And this is particularly true in France, where 75% of the, of the people um, think that there's too much immigration. Macron just ignores them. Yeah. And as I said earlier, he stars himself as this great Democrat. Well, OK, then, Mr. Macron, put this to the vote. Allow the people a referendum on whether... They want to stop mass immigration into Europe, into France. Poland's had the courage to do it, and I hope it forces every other country to do likewise. Yeah. 
Well, because we hear this phrase all the time, don't we, from the left? Well, we have to do our share. We have to take our fair share of migrants. I don't think most people agree with that system at all. I don't think we believe that just because you want to have a better life, you can get one. You know, it'd be nice in a perfect world to be able to offer people uh, a chance to start again uh, and to give them a free house and to give them a free car and to give them a free uh, uh, sort of amount of, of money so that they didn't have to work. But I'm afraid that's not the way that the economy works. It's not the way the country works. And it's incredibly unfair on people, not least those people who have come here legally from other countries, um, who are working their nuts off trying to make a living. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a cost of living crisis across Europe. Um, and you know, a lot of in France, for example, 14 million people are on the breadline. And you know, we, we need to look after our own first, while at the same time, as I said earlier, you know, we, of course, giving aid to these countries, making sure that the aid goes to the right places. Because what's happening at the moment, Mike, and I've written about this repeatedly, it costs 3,000 euros to come across the Mediterranean. Okay, that's a lot of money. Yeah. The people coming across are predominantly middle class people. Okay, we are stripping Africa of the best and the brightest. The, you know, the, I, I admire the people who are willing to make this journey, even though it's illegal. But but we're depriving countries like Mali and Eritrea and Ethiopia of, of, their, of their best people. And we should be encouraging them to stay there, but at the same time, giving aid, making sure it goes to the right places to help these countries develop. We haven't been doing that. So who's moved in instead? China and Russia. Yeah. Although you might argue we have tried that and it hasn't worked because we've been giving money to some of these countries for a very long time. I and mean, India, for example, is now one of the biggest places where people come to this country from illegally, even though we have actually got safe routes for them to come on. Because many, many people come to this country from India to either work in the care sector uh, or to do student visas, right? But those who can't get those or for some reason have applied and didn't get one are now coming illegally. And we've given millions and millions of pounds to India yeah. over the years. Hasn't done any good. No, absolutely, absolutely. But the whole it just sums up that the shambolic nature, really, of a whole not just you know the immigration, the aid system, really our our our, our foreign policy. And I'm talking about Europe in general here. And it's the same in you know if you look at at the um, you know, the, the majority of people coming across the Mediterranean are economic migrants there's a lot coming from egypt for example a really popular tourist destination and this is why it's so important as the likes of georgia maloney has been saying for a long time that the eu refused to listen to her you need to have a processing center set up in north africa where people can be processed and if they are genuinely fleeing war persecution let them in europe did a great job with, the, with ukrainian refugees when putin invaded and, and they were genuine refugees. And notice, Mike, that the vast majority were, were not young men. The young men were staying in their country, faith, fighting the invader. It was women and children mm. and old men. And, and yet, we just look, look at the photos that we see of the people arriving, either in Italy or in, in, uh, at the, in uh, Dover. The young men, they are overwhelmingly young, fit, healthy men. And, and it's just not right. And this is why the people, we've said so many times, Mike, the people are so annoyed, the Europeans, because they see the, the, the unfairness of it, that people are just playing the system. Mm. And what's the latest? The latest is that the Albanians have now, the Albanian mafia, who are at the heart of all this people trafficking, have now set up a new route from Spain to the UK and are quite happily advertising it on social media, 
And so we're just going to see another surge in Albanian migration. Yeah. And they're not there to work legally. They're there to work in drugs, prostitution, organised crime. And they're just coming in through open, mm. open border. Exactly. And I mean, it is something like um, a sort of an underground sewer, isn't it? As soon as you push one manhole covered down, they pop up somewhere else. Gavin, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Gavin Mortimer there, a writer at The Spectator uh, over in France with the French perspective on it. And he's right. The French don't care. The French want rid of people as much as we do. But the trouble is, they're all ending up on our shores. And they're all coming now, not just through the Channel, but they'll be coming through from northern Spain as well. Tremendous. Brilliant. 0344 499 1000 will take your calls coming next. Plus, of course, later on, we're going to go north of the border. Uh, we're going to find out what's going on uh, with an advert that's been banned from being put out there because apparently uh, it's disrespectful to Rishi Sunak. Really? This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots of you to talk to. We will get to all of you, of course. Uh, Christine in Surrey says, taking DNA as proof of identity would ensure people wouldn't be able to obtain multiple passports, multiple fraudulent bank accounts or driving licences. This will not end well for our country or our people. Um, well, the thing is, right, uh, I don't know if you're talking about the spies or the migrants there, uh, but basically it is pretty easy to get forged documents in this country. You know, I'm sorry to break it to you. Uh, unfortunately, there are lots of, um, shall we say, unscrupulous people who will do anything for money. And if you offer them enough money, they will get you what you want. Uh, Lanks Lad says this, uh, a lot of us office workers hated lockdown. Many work offices were quick to take advantage by selling the offices, including mine. Working from home was novel for about a month tops. No more tax back for working from home or extra monthly to compensate. Basically, working from home for me is bloody awful. And most of us would love to be back altogether in an office. Well, this is the thing. Some people who go on and on, bleating on about, oh, actually, I quite like working from home. Well, either one, you've got no imagination, or two, you don't have any friends. Because nobody in their right mind wants to be stuck in the house 24-7, working there as well as actually living there. Because the whole point of living is that you get out and about, you meet people, you socialise, you go to work, you come home. If you work from home, then you don't really have a home. You have a place of work where you happen to sleep. That's not the good thing to do. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Let us talk now, though, to Tasmina Ahmed Sheikh, chair of the Alipa Party, uh, a woman who put on one of the greatest shows at the Edinburgh Festival over the past uh, week or two, uh, which was, of course, the uh, debating show The Eyes Have It. I was fortunate enough to take part in it. Uh, luckily, they didn't ban me before, uh, before I got up there, uh, Tasmina, like they'd have to, to Graham Linehan, but we may get into that later on. Uh, but very well, good morning well, to you. Good morning to you, Mike, and you're a very welcome addition to the show. And I suppose that show demonstrates how it is possible to have differing political views, but it doesn't mean to say that people's arguments should be shut down. I mean, let's face it, uh, you were in the public se sector workers' right to strike debate. You were speaking against the motion. You insulted perhaps about 80% of the audience who are public <laughs> sector workers. However, they thought that you, ha you should have the opportunity to express your opinion. I suppose that's, that, that uh, has... Uh, good relevance to what we're about to talk about relative to our Rishi Sunak it's yes. Scotland's oil poster. Well, it does, because this is a remarkable situation, right? You guys are, like many other parties, fighting a by-election uh, coming up because one of the SNP members uh, has decided to uh, perhaps not fight again after what happened to her. But basically, uh, Global, which is the big sort of... Um, organisation that runs all of the kind of um, poster sites, all of the advertising sites, um, and also runs one or two radio stations, they basically have said to you that you cannot put up a poster, which we're looking at right now, 
of Rishi Sunak because they're saying that it's somehow disrespectful of him. Tell us about that. I, I think they said, to use their words in inverted commas, they said it was slander. So to give a bit of context, uh, this advertising campaign is off the back of what we anticipated would be healthy jurors figures for Scotland, which were released today, which demonstrates an increase in revenue of Scotland over 20%, compared with UK at just over 11%. And of these figures, 6.9 billion comes from oil. And this poster was to serve as a reminder. It's still almost a reproduction of a very successful SNP poster from the 80s, which was Margaret Thatcher saying the same thing, basically. Right. She's happy because she's draining, draining the oil out of Scotland for no material benefits to Scotland. So this poster is to demonstrate that what happened in the 80s is happening now. It quite clearly has an element of humour in it. And to be frank, political satire and humour has been around for decades. The idea that we, we shut this down is absolutely absurd. So Global accepted advertising from the Apple Party. Uh, we provided what that advertising was going to be. Yeah. They then said they weren't going to use these posters because they, they deemed it slander. But if we did want to advertise, we could say, vote Alba. So not only are they telling us what they won't put up, they're telling us what we require to say right. for them to put posters. And you mentioned, indeed, uh, Mike, quite correctly, the upcoming Rutherford Glen by-election and our party, the Alba Party, is due to decide whether we're going to be fighting that by-election. A particularly distasteful by-election, I should say, given the, the context mm. of it. And just 10% of the entire electorate voted uh, for the recall uh, petition. But let's put that to one side at the moment. But that would allow us then not to actively participate in that by-election, giving political messaging, which is hugely important. And it's hugely important to Scotland because we were told in 2014 by the Better Together Labour and Tory pals comrades that Scotland's all was running out and therefore an independent Scotland couldn't be successful and then we have Rishi Sunak sauntering up to or flying in a helicopter no doubt up to Scotland to issue 150 new licenses after mm. telling us that Scotland's oil and gas was running out so this poster is to serve as a reminder that the Tories cannot be trusted with Scotland's oil no. and gas and actual resources and that's just you know the scratching the surface Mike because you know we have a bounty of, of renewable energy potential but we're not going to entrust Rishi Sunak and the Tories uh, with Scotland's potential particularly when uh, Scots in Scotland in a land of energy plenty right. are low poverty and, and it so seems to me it seems to me regardless of, of whether or not your your statement is is a statement of truth or fact or whether it's just opinion that doesn't matter to me you know you're a political organization you should be able to say whatever you like we've got the poster we're looking at now with Rishi Sunak he's done up as a bit of a vampire I think we've also got the original Margaret Thatcher poster which was the SNP's version uh, way back when uh, when they painted her as a sort of vampire with the with the you know the high collar and the teeth and all the rest of it now nobody stopped that advert from going out so what's changed and, and what exactly have they actually said to you which part of your advert is, is slanderous because I, I can't see it. They've, they've just said that it's slander and I'm sure Mike you don't walk about metropolitan London and decide that you agree or disagree with various advertising campaigns. You know it's up to you to decide as yeah. a consumer whether you purchase the item or vote for the party whose campaign it is. And of course I don't know why they're being so precious about it and who's giving the instruction mm. that this is slander so our posters can't go up because right, quite frankly you know if they're going to dish it out they should take it back. I mean they dished it out in 2015, when there was a picture of Alex Salmond pickpocketing a Tory party poster, pickpocketing the pocket of Ed Miliband. We didn't go up and furore about that because we believe in political satire and people who believed that message was correct obviously wouldn't vote for Alex's party and those who believed there was uh, 
it, it was incorrect, you know, would vote the other way. But, you know, the idea that we're taking away agency from people to make their own decisions about posters and advertising campaigns is ridiculous. If we were to put up a poster that just said, vote Alba, people would say, why? This poster gives them a reason why they should support Alba because amongst many other virtuous things, we are the only party that believes in independence for Scotland that doesn't want to sell the oil and gas sector down the road, but believes in a just transition that respects the oil and gas workers industry and their families. But of course, a well cognizant of the, the bounty of renewable energy and how that should be harnessed uh, for the benefit of the people of Scotland, not squandered away. We have nothing to show for the oil and gas boom. In fact, the Treasury hasn't even set up a sovereign wealth fund. So uh, quite frankly, it's despicable that we are being uh, obstructed from making a very important political point. And how far does this go, Mike? There's going to be a general election next year. What if a Labour poster was to go up uh, and Globe was saying, no, we're not going to put that up anymore. We right. have got interference by commercial companies in elections uh, uh, by political parties removing from the public and um, whether they should vote or not for a, for a particular party quite frankly yeah. it's taking free speech or abolition of free speech or abandonment of it to another yes. level altogether well i was I, I was reminded um tasmina of the blair advert do you remember the blair, the tony blair with the, the eyes the, yeah the dangerous eyes advert i think we've got that as well i remember when this went up and it had quite an effect and people knew labor knew danger i mean as it happened it didn't actually work um but it turned out to be very actually true because nobody actually realized quite how dangerous that was all going to be but i mean the funny thing about global um and i'm sure that this would not be in any way a connection to why they've taken this decision you know, they do own some radio stations and they do give a very good platform to Keir Starmer and Sadiq Khan on one of their radio stations. I'm presuming that's not because they're particularly pro-Labour. Uh, so you wouldn't think that they would pass that kind of policy on. I'm sure that wouldn't be what they would do uh, to their advertising outdoor hoarding scenario. Um, but it does make you wonder, doesn't it, that, that there might be some form of, uh, uh, of influence being peddled here. Well, as you have so um, expertly discussed on your programme in the past few weeks, what's happened with Coots and Co and who, and who cannot have accounts mm. because you don't agree with viewpoints. It's just This is just another manifestation, it would appear, of the same thing. Now, of course, it's perfectly within Global's hands to, to decide to reverse their decision and accept our post. I mean, at the end of the day, thank, thanks to them and thanks to the excellent broadcasters out there and the newspapers, they've given us plenty of coverage of this post. So they, they sought to deny public access to and all that's happened is, is direct opposite so I suppose you know all publicity is good publicity but there is a wider concern here for all of us and it's the idea of, of free speech and you know that it's no longer possible why, why are companies whose job is simply to, to, to conduct their business whether it's banks or whether it's advertising agencies or whatever why do they then feel that they have a place or it's even proper for them to assert some kind of authority mm. over what the person who's having an account with them or taking an advertising with them can say in that advertising. Now, this is serious because it's politics. Uh, we're going to have elections. We have an election by election coming up. There are general, there's a general election next year, and it would appear that certain organisations are trying to stymie free speech and the ability for political parties to participate on an equal playing field. And when we don't have free and fair elections in this country, we have something greatly sincere, sorry, greatly dangerous or worrying yeah. uh, to be concerned. Absolutely right. Before I let you go, Tasmin, I just want to play you a little bit of Graham Lenehan, uh, who spoke to Julie Hartley Brewer this morning. He's had his show axed uh, by the Edinburgh Festival, by a particular venue up there, uh, who decided he didn't like some of his views uh, on the trans debate. Have a look at this. 
Well, it was it was announced in the morning, and I was quite surprised they announced it because it's always a it's always a risk to announce me appearing at something. <laughs> and it was uh, it was cancelled within a couple of hours, maybe. You know, I mean, you do get used to this type of thing after a while. It's never pretty. It never makes you feel good, but. You know, the only good thing about it is that it's drawing more attention to the fact that, you know, essentially a, a group of highly ideological cultists have taken over institutions uh, across society. Well, um, he won't be playing tonight, but maybe they'll do it in the car park. I mean, it's a bit ridiculous to have an arts festival uh, that's so censorious, isn't it? I really do not understand the thinking behind any of this. The Edinburgh Fringe Festival is a festival we've been very proud of up here in Scotland and, of course, internationally. It's supposed to be the bastion of, of free speech and, and comedy and, and, and entertainment and all the things you can expect from it. So I, I simply cannot understand why anyone thinks this is a good thing. You know, As you know, Mike, um, I, was very, I was able to very successfully put on a show which demonstrates that there are different sides to every argument. Uh, there was respectful debate. We involved school children in that debate. We created an excellent space to encourage that debate. And everyone involved did us proud, and particularly the young people, you know, yeah. a 14-year-old girl from Boxburn Academy. Now, th these young people should be allowed to attend events, hear different arguments and formulate their own opinions. Enforcing opinions on young people or indeed anyone in society is quite frankly unacceptable. We seem to be going backwards, but we're going to have to push back against this. And that's what we're doing as part of this poster campaign. And I'll continue to do in my role as chair of Alba Party and indeed a producing director of uh, stage and television. Excellent. Well, I should look forward to the next production. Meanwhile, I've got a uh, couple of uh, tweets have come in asking me to correct you on the fact that it's not Scotland's oil, it's Britain's oil. Well, I mean, uh, it is Scotland's fault <laughs> because that's where it's due. I mean, you know, one could anticipate such arguments. Uh, if it was Britain's oil, which I don't believe that it is, I think it's a, a Scottish resource, then they should be asking questions of the British government as to what they have done as custodians of that to better the lives of the people across the UK. Not even a sovereign wealth fund, nothing to show for it. They've used Scotland's resources to prop up their own treasury. Shame on them. Well, listen, if I was running the Treasury, I'd pay you good money for it and toll it mine. But that's the way it goes. Unfortunately, I'm not running the country. Tasmina, good to talk to you. Tasmina Ahmed Sheikh, chair of the Alipan Party. Apparently, they can't put an advert up because uh, it's slanderous about Rishi Sunak. Do me a favour. I mean, some of the things we say are probably slanderous about Rishi Sunak. He doesn't mind um, because they're true at the end of the day. This is Talk TV. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Sarah in West Sussex says, Hi, Mike, it is not Scotland's oil and gas. Your guest may wish to calm down. Uh, well, she claims that basically um, we haven't run it very well. So in that case, surely um, it's now down to Scotland to run it better. Well, I don't know. Um, I think technically speaking, of course, it is Britain's natural gas and natural uh, oil reserves because in the end it's in British waters. And that's what counts. Scotland doesn't have any waters. But that's another story. Let us talk instead to Anthony Worrell Thompson, chef and restaurateur, man of the moment, um, because there's been a debate going on uh, on sort of line and on Reddit, which is one of these places where lots of people discuss many, many things to do with the culture of the country. Several people have taken uh, to Reddit to say basically it's impolite to take off a service charge if it's been put on uh, by a restaurant automatically because an awful lot of restaurants now of course will give you the bill and on the end of that bill will be an amount for service sometimes as much as 18 percent uh, generally speaking somewhere between 12 and 12 and 18 I think 15 sometimes as well um, let's find out from Anthony whether it's the right thing to do to add 
tipping on or whether you should leave it to the discretion uh, of the customer. Anthony, very good uh, morning to you. Morning, Mike. Yeah, I mean, I have great sympathy for people that work in restaurants because it's a bloody hard job and you work pretty much every hour that God sends, particularly those in the back room making all the stuff and, and, mm. and those in the front of house who take a lot of uh, uh, unnecessary uh, nonsense from the from the from the customers um i've always had this well, i lived in america for 10 years so i've always had the view that you two tip people uh if they do a good job but i don't mind giving them a smaller tip if they don't do a particularly good job um but some people seem to object in this country to the tip automatically being added so that you pay it almost without looking at it well i think as it, what we do at the greyhound is we put optional service charge on so it's up to the customer. We always ask the customer, are you happy with the service? And generally they say yes. Right. And um, if they don't want to do it, we don't object. We don't chase them down the street and say, where's the tip? Right. You know, I think the thing is, I've seen some of the, quite a lot of that Reddit comments and um, it's saying, oh, there's a very high minimum wage. They should be unhappy with that. People can't live on the minimum wage. No. You know, if we want our industry, service industry, to be as good as a proper profession, as opposed to waiters waiting for another job, then we've got to pay them on a par with the chefs in the back of house. Absolutely. And what about the, uh, the way that you do it? I mean, is it on the bill? Is it Because now, I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember when you actually didn't get a printed out bill, you just got a written bill. Um, and then sometimes the, the, the service was added uh, as an afterthought, you know, by hand or something like that. But for a lot of people, they don't really, they look at the total, they don't necessarily see that there's even service on there. A couple of people have said, oh, I really resented it because I didn't find out until after I'd left the restaurant that I paid another 18% for the service. Well, all I can say to them is read your bill. You know, you don't go into a shop and they put any price on a piece of it. You know, you, you check the price of the, of the item and yeah. it's exactly the same in restaurants. Right. When you're looking at a menu, you know the price of the wine, the price of the food you're paying. And also, and usually, course, usually at the bottom of the menu, it will say an optional 12.5%, which is what we do, will be added to your bill. Right. And the other thing that some people seem to nitpick about is, is it fair to put on service on the on the drinks you know by all means put service on the uh, uh, the meal because you're delivering the meal you're literally carrying a plate but if you're selling on a reasonably good up uh, up market uh, wine you're, you're you're marking it up quite considerably is it fair to put the service on that as well well it, that is slightly debatable I, uh, we've got a pub stroke restaurant more restaurant than pub and if someone goes to the bar and buys their own drinks we don't put a service charge on but right. if you've got a waiter carrying it, filling up your wine, filling up your water. Yes, we do put a service charge mm. on it. Yeah. And I know that can be excessive if you're buying a £300 bottle of wine. Um, but it's it's one of those grey areas where we haven't, none of us have made up well, our minds. Well, it is, because it. as I say, listen, I have absolute sympathy and I would never, ever criticise people like yourself who run restaurants or who work in them because it is a really tough job. But some of the markups on the wine, I mean, I go to a very nice Italian place around here in London Bridge, which is fantastic, you know, very much red and white tablecloth, blah, blah, blah. And a very nice bottle, I was with my son the other day, he fancied some red wine, we had a bottle of a uh, very nice kind of Chianti and we thought, oh, this is quite nice, 55 quid. Um, looked it up when we got home, 15 quid in the shop. And that, to me, you kind of go, hello, that's 40 quid right off the top. So you do it all right on that and that's where you make the money, right? Yeah, absolutely. I do think in this country we have a very sort of mixed bag. You know, if you go to the States, like you said, you usually pay double the sales tax, could be 18 20%. You go to Australia, they don't expect a tip. Uh, Asia, basically you pay what you want. Um, Europe includes the tip. I, I do think we need some sort of ruling from government, whoever, 
my my view would be it should be all prices fully inclusive tipping at your discretion yeah so if you think you've got a bit better than the average or you're very happy with your waves of waitress then add, give them a bit more you know because yeah. i mean like when i lived in new york it was a very clever system they'd have there in the bars where you'd go in and every third drink you'd get a free one so you mm. kind of go in, and I used to fall for it every time, because you kind of go in, you'd have one, and you go, eh, have another one. And then you go, if I have a third, if I get one more, I'll get one free. And then suddenly you've had four, and then you go, no, that's, that goes the rest of the day. And then you stay for the next free one, then you've had six. Um, and then the wife's on the phone, going, when are you coming home? But, you know, it seems to work quite well there. People don't mind tipping, and their tips are a lot bigger. And the people who do the waitering jobs seem to be much more professional, because they're, they're, they're respected more. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, unless you're in Los Angeles, where obviously they're waiting for that extras part to be called onto a film. Yeah. I mean, people do do it as a profession. I think that is the problem over here. When we had a lot of Europeans who were very professional mm. as as waiting staff, that was great. But we've got a lot of Brits, a lot of students, and it's just a it's just a job to give them some pocket money. And that that's another thing we've never got right here. We've We've always thought that service is a bit menial for the Brits. You know, we always left it to yeah. the Spanish, the Italians, whatever. Uh, and actually, this is one industry that, apart from maybe the sort of fast food chains, this is one industry that AI is not going to take, you know, take over. Right. There will be a job for a waiter. There will be a job for a chef. And, and I think treat it as a profession. Absolutely. One final thing. I've just been handed a piece from the Henley Standard here. It says you're taking a bit of a step back um, at the Greyhound, but you'll still be around, but you're just going to be slightly less involved. Is that right? That's right. Well, I'm 72 now, so I'm sort of looking to slow down. Well, I'm actually not. I've got loads of energy, but my wife wants me to slow down. She wants us <laughs> to travel. And uh, I've still got the other restaurant in queue, Grill Off the Green. Right. So I'll be concentrating a lot on that. But I'm still a consultant to the Greyhound. I'll still be in there a lot. And I hope... You know, everything needs new blood. I was there for the best part of 18 years. And it's good, but it could always get better. Listen, you're, you're, you're a great man. Anne has sent this in, just to leave you with a nice uh, thought for the day. Mike, please tell Anthony he's one of my heroes and a true humanitarian. I'm not sure if that's one of your relatives that sent that in, but... Um... <laughs> no. <laughs> Anne's very I don't happy have any left. <laughs> well, listen, good luck, and thank you so much for talking to us, and, and, and all the best for the future. We'll see you soon. Anthony Worrell Thompson, uh, chef and restaurateur, uh, taking a bit of a step back out of the Greyhound, but he's still going to be around, and he still has that place in queue uh, in West London as well. Uh, coming up in the next hour, we've got loads more for you. Uh, we'll bring you up to date with the world of woke. Donald McLeod is going to be here, because up in Glasgow, they've been fining people absolutely through the nose for their ULES charge. And they've made a bucket load of money, 600,000 quid in the first month alone. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.